In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Trilakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Wired for Love by Stephanie Cassiopo. Wired for Love, a neuroscientist's journey through romance, loss, and the essence of human connection. Um, Sounds like an interesting book looking at how neuroscience can give us some insights into our capacity to, to love based on our brain. So look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next week's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Self-Delusion by Gregory Burns. The Self-Delusion, the new neuroscience of how we invent and reinvent our identities. And this was a fascinating book. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, The Self-Delusion, the title itself is quite, uh, captures your attention, or at least captured my attention. Um, Try to understand this sense of who we are or the sense of self that we have that feels like such a real thing or such a permanent thing, but recognizing how much it's maybe even a delusion as the title implies, some kind of a a fake belief or a belief that's not necessarily based on a pure reality, but what we, how we make sense of the world. And so it was really a fascinating book that um, looks at different aspects of how we consider who we are, how that might change, things that might affect that, and he even gives some advice that I might touch on by by the end of the discussion. So uh, the self-delusion. So as he puts it early in the book, there are, we might think when I say, who are you or who am I? It's one person or one entity. But as he says, uh, we have at least three different versions of ourselves. So I have my past self based on... um, all the memories, experiences that I have, and of course, memories itself fallible, which I'll touch on. I have this present self, which is the me experiencing life at this very moment. And then there's a future self that I can think about and anticipate um, different counterfactuals or different paths or things I want. So already we can see that there is more than just one self that we have, but also this idea of who I am uh, can be affected by so many things. And really, it's something that as a therapist, something we talk about is self-awareness and understanding, but even recognizing how complex that is to understand who I am is quite fascinating. So again, this title, I think, says a lot, the self-delusion, that maybe our sense of self is not something so clearly defined or such a real thing as much as it might feel like it is at any given moment. Um, So when we look at these different aspects of the self, the first part of the book is called self, the self across time. And so here he also talks about memories, as I touched on just a minute ago, and how our memories feel so real to us, but we know that they are not some kind of a video recording that we play back accurately and perfectly, 
but really there's some recreation there, a reconstruction. And so each time we remember something from our past, as much as it might feel so real, we know that it's based partially on some truths, some places where we filled in the gaps, some places where maybe we even heard of it or learned things from other people, but now it feels like it's something we experienced. But there are so many different facets that go into uh, our memory, and there's a lot of research that shows this, that as much as we might think our memory is something so real and something that we can completely rely on, uh, it doesn't appear to be the case. Um, For example, there have been studies looking at different memorable moments in history which might create what are sometimes called flashbulb memories, these memories that are very vivid and intense. And so because of that, they feel like they're so real. And you might say, of course, I'll never forget where I was when something happened. And so one of the ones where they've done research on is 9-11. And so um, for most people, that was an incredibly memorable day wherever you were in the world. And so especially if you're here in the United States, and people will say, I know exactly where I was, what happened. I was in the living room and the TV was on. My mom walked in and they, they have all these memories or these details of the memories of what happened. But they've done research where they had people recount shortly after the event what, what happened, what was going on. And then a year later, they had them come back and say, okay, what was, what was the story of 9-11 for you? And they already saw after one year some key events or key parts of the experience had changed what they said initially and a year from then had changed and then over 10 years they saw that the rate of change slowed down but still there was changes in how they recalled what happened yet their confidence stayed the same or increased and that's the important part and that's what i'm talking about how it feels so real so we think i'm remembering everything exactly how it happened i'll never forget it this happened this happened this happened but we see that we have accounts where you write it down and you later look at it and see that things have changed. So we can see that this past self, which helps you create who you think you are today, is based on a lot of things and some of them are fictions and things that you don't know. Another aspect of memory that is can make it even more difficult is when we hear stories of ourselves. So uh, most of us have heard stories from our childhood, from our parents or other family members, something funny you did, something cute you did, or some memory you had together. And what can happen is if you keep hearing that story, or if you've seen pictures or videos of those stories, they start to become blurry as in like, am I remembering what happened? Or is it because I've heard the story? And when I heard the story, let's say if I tell you something that happened to you when you were a child, you start seeing it in your mind's eye. And so now when you recall it later on, you can't tell, was it something I myself experienced or is it that I remember the story? And so this often happens. And there's some really great research. It wasn't in this book where they've deceived um, uh, people to remember something that never happened to them. For example, they'll say, have you ever went in a hot air balloon and they'll say no I've never went in a hot air balloon when I was a child and then they'll photoshop a picture of them they say oh your parents sent us this picture of you and your uncle here in a hot air balloon and they look at it and they're like wow I don't I don't remember that and then they have them come back like in a week and when they do now they have a whole memory of what happened oh I remember we were in the sky and yeah it was kind of cloudy and I was scared and this happened it's a whole vivid memory and it could sound like they're such liars or they're making it up but it's that's how our brains work when there are holes we fill fill in the gap. So if I show you a picture of something that happened and you believe that it's a real picture, you'll try to remember what, what happened there. Why can't I remember that? So we can see that the you that makes up who you are today, that past self when you think of yourself, 
even that is not something you can rely on to know. It really is exactly what happened. So we can see where, again, this title of the self-delusion comes into play. Um, and he does a lot of work talking about the power of narratives or stories, uh, getting into different types of stories and how there are few themes that tend to show up in almost all the stories that we see, even though we might think there's infinite types of stories, and there really can be, but we do find some major themes that come up. And so the way we look at ourselves, it's like a character in a story of our life. And how we see ourselves can be very much impacted by things that we've experienced, but we become this character and have this story. Did I have this good life? Did I have a, things were good and then they went bad, or I got bad luck, or um, I pushed through and overcame some challenges. But there's a story that is a big part of how we make sense of what has happened to us, partially because we can't remember everything. So you can't remember everything that's ever happened to you and every experience that you've had. So it makes sense that stories are like a shorthand. These narratives are a shorthand to remember uh, different parts of who we are. So he also gets into aspects of how others affect us and how we are very much social beings, social animals. And so we get affected by one another. And here he brings up some important conversations around how we are affected by one another, which of course we are, but we tend to not think that other people will affect how we think. So we don't think that just because other people believe something, that's going to affect what I believe, or if other people have this opinion, it's going to affect me. But the truth is we have to be very real with ourselves and recognize that we are all affected by the people around us and by society at large. If people favor something or against something, it's going to influence you as much as you might think. I think completely for myself, nothing is affected by other people. It just isn't the truth. And there could be good reason for that. If you find out that many people see something a certain way, it would likely make sense that to recognize you could be wrong and they are all right rather than they are all wrong and you are right. So there makes sense. It makes sense to have some level of conformity, even though that might sound like a really bad word to conform, but it can make sense to recognize if I'm thinking I see something and everyone else sees something, maybe I'm wrong. And they've done studies that show exactly that. Solomon Ash, back in the, I think it was the 1950s, did research where they would have subjects in a room. Maybe you've seen this. And if you haven't, you can look up the pictures online because uh, it could be quite fascinating to see what people were able to, how people were able to change their minds based on other people's opinions. But they'd have people in a room and they'd show them a card and there'd be a card with a line that was the target that they were supposed to then find one of the next three that was the same length as that line. So basically you have like a short line and then you have three, one is medium, one is short, one is long. And if they were in a group where they were paid actors, where everyone gave a wrong answer, many of the participants would give the wrong answer, even though it seemed pretty obvious that it was wrong, but they would conform. They would say, yeah, that choice B is the correct choice, even though they probably thought choice A was. Um, and so we see that people are much more affected by others and we'd probably like to believe. And one thing people often experience with these kinds of experiments is that when they hear about it, they say, oh, I would never do it. If I was in it, I would always give the right answer that I know is right. But I always try to keep this in mind myself, that if I read a study and it says 75% of people respond in a certain way, that means that it's more than likely I would have responded that way. 
I'm a typical person too. We like to think we are so different. That might be another type of self-delusion, a way that we want to see ourselves as so separate and so different and so advanced compared to everyone else. But really, it can be more realistic to recognize we are more like everyone else than we are different. As I mentioned that he gives some advice near the end of the book where he's focusing on if we have these stories of ourself and we can see that it's not something so real or something so fixed. He does say, though, that to change the narrative of how you see yourself is not something that just happens quickly or overnight. He likens it to a big ship that is, is going in a certain direction. So to change directions in a very heavy tanker, it takes some time. It's going to be very slow and take a lot of effort, but it can happen. So he does give some some advice on that. And you know, even if I, I can deviate for a moment here, my work as a therapist, I see this as a experience where people come into the room or into the Zoom, if you're doing it online, and they have this vision and view of their, themselves and their lives, the story of their life and this character that they are in their own life. And it is so deeply ingrained and so deeply ingrained, especially what happened to them in childhood, which is some of the cliches we always talk about. People think, oh, everything comes back to my mom or my dad. Well, those early experiences have a huge imprint on how you see yourself and you see the world and then what your expectations are for yourself and the world. And so you can see that people have this very fixed state or sense of who they are. Oh, I am a this kind of a person. I'm the person that people hurt, or I am the one who's always the victim, or I'm the one who's actually always gets my way, or I have to do this, or whatever it is, these ways of seeing themselves that are so ingrained that it can change. But even in the course of therapy, it takes time to slowly show that maybe that story you know of yourself or you think you know of yourself might not be the full story or there's another way of looking at it. And maybe the way that you see yourself, the character you see yourself to be, doesn't have to be that type of character. It can be something different. And so at the end of the book, he he says that you can use this ability to think of your future you. There's the past you, the present you, and the future you. And to try to recognize how you can live a life to minimize regrets. He says that's something that can help you to live a better life is to to minimize regrets. So if you go forward, and, and, and Daniel Pink um, wrote a great book that I talked about last year, The Power of Regret, uh, and it has some of that in there as well. But this idea that we can look forward and think, well, what would I regret if I especially didn't do in life? Because usually it's those acts of omission that hurt us the most, that we regret the most. But what could I do to make sure I don't, I live a life that's least full of regret? And so he explains a bit of how you can do that, thinking of a future you, even thinking of a cloned version of you and going forward and how that would impact you. But uh, this was a really, really fascinating book that I enjoyed. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about a lot of things and reflecting. And I, I think you would too, if you have any interest in this. And it's a theme that I've been thinking about more and more looking at how we view ourselves and see ourselves and how seeing ourselves as so separate from one another tends to lead to pain and isolation. But when we recognize that this sense of self is not so real and that maybe there is less between me and you than I think, it can actually be a quite lovely feeling that we experience. But uh, the book does a great job of getting into all of the things I mentioned and much more, looking at neuroscience research and how it relates to these topics. So I highly recommend it. That book is The Self-Delusion by Gregory Burns. 
Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in this segment, I wanted to talk about the recent passing of a, a great American hero, Judith Human. She would go by Judy Human, who was a um, monumental advocate for disability rights here in the United States, and she just passed away this on the weekend, March 4th, at the age of 75. Um, but I would highly recommend reading her book, which I'll talk about briefly, um, Being Human, which uh, for me was a very important book that I, I read. And also you can see the documentary Crip Camp. I think it's still on Netflix, uh, which is she's in along with other um, disability rights activists, and it's very powerful powerful movie and actually I had read the book and watched the documentary I think in the same week and a lot of what she talked about was um, shown and so it was great to see video footage of, of much of what she talked about in the book uh, but I, I encourage you to go learn more about her life I can't I'm not gonna do a full profile on her but I hope you will see what she has accomplished and uh, when I was reading the book and when I read about disability rights in the United States what's at times shocking is how recent some of the advancements have been made. Some legislation passed in, in the 70s, but took a long time for it to get passed or actually implemented. But even um, some parts of the Disabilities Acts were, were updated or changed in 1990. So I, I was a young child when that happened. So uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act was, was passed um, in 1990. So that's not so long ago. And um, for me, I've been doing this show for about nine years, and I remember that I learned of Judith Human. I didn't know much about her until I saw her, or maybe I, I don't know if I knew her by name, I would say. I saw her on a on The Daily Show, um, which is a show here in the United States, where she was talking about her book, and I was very inspired by what she was talking about in the interview, and then I, I instantly ordered the book and read the book, and uh, I learned a lot about her, of course, but about the the movement for disability rights in the United States. And so for me, it was humbling also, because as I said, I've, I've had, at that point, I don't remember how many years been doing this show, but I hadn't devoted much time to talking about disability issues. Um, I had here and there talked about some experience I had, I had had, but not much. And so it was humbling in recognizing um, as much as I try to talk about social issues I am a psychologist, but on the show discuss various social issues. I realized that I had neglected a very important part of our population. And really, when we look at disability, there's various ways we can also look at it to recognize we all range in some ways when it comes to this, this being able-bodied or being disabled. And, and if you live long enough, you'll experience certain degrees of of disability, um, but realizing how much of the population has um, is affected by these issues, and I hadn't talked about it on my show, and so I was humbled and also felt some guilt about that, and recognizing that I hadn't discussed such an important part of the population that I was doing the same thing. I was forgetting and neglecting them, which is what happens in society and what individuals in the disability rights movement have been fighting for is to just be fully recognized and have their needs met, which is something that 
we definitely can do, but we have not um, done that in, in history. We haven't done a good job of that, and we still need to do a lot. And it's something that we become aware of all the time that we can do more. So uh, I, w- I was very inspired by by her work and what she accomplished and realizing that she deserves more and people deserve more. Even that title of her book, Being Human, so her last name is spelled different than human, but uh, as a human being, but really herself being human, but then recognizing that um, individuals with disabilities need to be treated like human. They are be- being human as well. And so for me, that was very powerful to read about her life and her work and to become more aware of of what we aren't doing enough of in the country and the world. And as I was saying, I, on this show, talk about a variety of issues, a range of things, but I do recognize that I'm always missing so much. And so I, I do try my best to be aware of what's happening in the world and, and different groups that might be marginalized or not be given the full rights or respect that they deserve, but I will always miss things. And so I think it does require a certain level of humility to remind ourselves of that, especially when at times when we have conversations around things that are going on in the world, uh, this word woke in the United States is a very polarizing word. Um, are you woke? Are you against being woke? Is wokeism a thing and, and a bad thing? Um, and I think, yes, sometimes people can go too far with things. I think some people, they want to be woke as a type of virtue signaling to show how good of a person they are, to show that um, I'm better than you, even to be condescending about it. So when you ask them about something or if they're talking, did you did you even know about the war here? Or did you even know about what was going on to these people and that people? And so I think, Yes, it's important to inform others and to talk about these issues, but if you're doing it in a way that's condescending and putting people down, then it seems to me that that would be more about you and showing yourself and trying to show yourself as being so good rather than whoever it is that you're talking about that is suffering. And so I think that's something that we want to be very, very mindful of and aware of. Um, But at the same time, the idea that being woke is so bad I think is, I I completely disagree with that being woke in the sense that looking at systematic issues and looking at people who are being oppressed or prejudiced against in some way and trying to do something about it, I think that's all of our responsibilities as citizens. We all have that responsibility to see who is being mistreated, who is not getting the rights they deserve, who is being marginalized in the world, and to do something about it, bring about awareness, talk about it, um, where we... Uh, here talk a lot about what's happening in Iran because we feel that the people of Iran clearly are not getting the rights that they deserve, especially um, women in Iran. And even now we're seeing with the school children, uh, schoolgirls in Iran being poisoned. Clearly this is an outrageous um, incident and state of affairs. And so we talk about it because uh, we know it's unjust. And so in a way someone could say, well, that's being woke. Yes, you're being aware of what is going on, something unfair that's happening and bringing about awareness to it. So I think to be fully against being woke, it's something that is just thrown out to try to end the argument. Oh, you're just being woke if you say something. Well, if something is unfair, we should be talking about it. And actually something I've seen related to this issue is um, I think Lego, uh, who is based in Denmark, they have 
released um, some Legos who are have some different disabilities. And then I saw some, you know, articles and people posting, oh, Lego has gone woke. And that's this, again, been this like uh, insulting phrase to throw at someone. And so they, it's presented almost as if, you know, this is the only thing people are focusing on, or this is something um, that's taking away from other things. But to me, it's a wonderful thing that children uh, play with different toys, dolls, and different things. And it could be so important for them to see someone that is like them, especially if they're made to feel different in some ways, or they maybe have had to deal with some challenges because of how they look or something that they're they're dealing with. We've seen this even in different ways where there was uh, dolls that were only white or dolls that were not made to have different colors or backgrounds that people could feel that they can relate to in some way um, or representation in the media. But so when I saw this, that they were creating Legos that had different disabilities, I thought, of course, I was actually surprised that it hadn't happened sooner. Why wouldn't they make um, some Legos that children who have some disabilities might think, oh, that's me, or I can play and relate to this this character when I am um, uh, playing with my Legos. I thought that was a wonderful thing. But again, it became this polarizing type of a thing where where certain people were against it because they said it was just going becoming woke or Legos were going woke. So um, I say all this to, to remind myself as I was saying earlier, to be alert because as much as we can think we know about what's going on in the world, we will always recognize that there are huge parts of the population potentially that we haven't paid enough attention to. And what's even sadder is often that's the type um, of discrimination these people are already facing. And that's what's really heartbreaking about that. So I do invite you all, along with myself, to keep our eyes open for this. Even this term of woke is really about stay woke, meaning that you stay alert, you stay aware to what's happening and not be passive about it. And so I hope you will all do that. But I also encourage you to to read her book, Being Human. She's written another book too, um, but also see Crip Camp and you'll see some videos of, of the great work she has done and others have done. Uh, really a touching documentary that um, will move you to tears, I'm sure, as it did me. So I hope you will check that out, but wanted to just honor and acknowledge Judith Human, a true American hero who did so much uh, for so many people and her legacy will continue through the great work that she did. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about slowing down. I don't know. I mean, I wonder if my voice will be slower because I'm going to talk about this topic. It might just happen even unconsciously. But um was just thinking about that, and I'll share where it, it came about just these past few days, and I am talking slower. Um, where it came about this past few days and, and doing uh, something, a new activity or an activity I hadn't done in a while. So I um, started doing a puzzle a couple of days ago. And it was an interesting experience because I hadn't done one in quite a while, 500 pieces, and actually it's not done yet. Well, depending on when you're listening to this, hopefully it will be done. But as of Monday, um, what is today, March 7th, March 6th, it is not done. But it, it was an, it's was it been an interesting experience so far for a few reasons. One is um, I think it's so good to do different types of activities I know that sounds kind of basic, but we can get stuck in our routines and every so often to do something different that's out of your comfort zone, something you haven't done in a while, 
Um, I think it's good for your uh, our our ability to think and to think on our feet and to be flexible. So I think that was great just to do that, to do something you don't feel like you're very good at or you have a lot of proficiency at. Um, but what was also interesting was starting the puzzle and seeing that there was these moments very early on where I was like, oh, there's no way I can we're going to get this done. It's just, how, do, how are we going to figure out? Look at all these pieces. So many of them look the same. Uh, I don't think we can do it. And there was these moments, like almost like this dread feeling of like, oh, there, there's no way. Maybe we should just give up. Um, I'm glad we didn't, but it was this interesting feeling of, I, I don't know how I can do it, but pushing through that. So that was also a very uh, important um, type of uh, experience to have, to feel that, um, you know, something that seems like you can't do, that you actually can do it to overcome that. And so that was uh, also interesting. But uh, as I mentioned, it, it did remind me of this, the power of slowing down. Um, and this is one of those types of cliche topics that everyone, you know, we hear about, oh, everything's going too fast, we're doing too much. But really, I think it's worth uh, focusing on a bit because there is such an emphasis in our world and in our lives and even the ways we tend to think about things of getting things done or how much did we get done and going through things quickly. And so this has always been the case for us, I think, as humans, especially in modern world, but even more with technology of just, okay, how long is this video? 20 seconds, I can watch it. Oh, the article's going to take 10 minutes to read. No, I'm not going to read it. How can I listen to this faster? Uh, YouTube, you can listen to things much faster. I'm guilty of those things. I've put podcasts on twice the speed or 1.5 the speed to hear it faster. Uh, even I've heard, I haven't done it before, but on Netflix, there are ways that you can watch faster so you can make the show go faster, um, which is interesting for me when it's things like movies or TV shows, because the whole point is to experience something and we're trying to experience it faster. So it's like, okay, here's a three-hour movie in four minutes, and everything happens super fast. Okay, I saw the whole movie almost like it's an accomplishment and now I'm done with it or I finished something but really the point of a movie um, even a book a tv show whatever it is is to have an experience with it um, and actually if you maybe have heard people talk sometimes about tv shows in this way I've heard a couple say oh yeah we did this we, we did game of thrones we did breaking bad and there's almost like we we did something as if an activity and to finish something, um, meaning they got through something. And so we live so much of our life with this mindset of how much did I get done? How many things did I, I, I finish in a way? And that tells us I lived a good life. And so I think there is something to doing things and enjoying things and feeling like you're giving of yourself in a way that feels good. So it's not to say that being unproductive is good, but to recognize how we measure our life and we value our life to recognize how important it is that when we create relationships the focus should be on spending time and creating moments together which takes time um, if you want to get close to someone there's no substitute for spending time with one another for just slowing down and having experiences together you can't accelerate that or to try to accelerate some type of closeness we try to do that. We try to come up with ways to think we are closer to someone else or feel close to people, and we pretend like we're close. We can have these superficial relationships, and people say, love you, miss you, love you, and these things just to 
show that they're so close to one another, but actually have they really put the time in to get close to each other? Possibly they haven't. And so that was my realization as I was doing this puzzles. You can't do it fast. You can't like just try to grab pieces and do something and just like mash them together. Uh, sometimes you might find a piece that looks like it fits. And if you push hard enough, it feels like it's going to fit, but it actually doesn't. And you're, you're going to mess it up. And then if you do that, it's going to mess up the rest of the puzzle because that piece goes somewhere else. And so the only way to do the puzzle is, yes, you can focus and put your attention on, which I think is also a good thing about puzzles. But um, but you have to do it slow. It takes time. There's no way around that. And it's just this consistent time that you put on something and literally, piece by piece, put it together and starts to come together and you feel really good. There is this nice sense of accomplishment. And really, there is this really great feeling when you're looking for a piece and you finally find it and it fits perfectly and it clicks in. It is does feel really good and really satisfying. But it is a slow type of experience. And so I think it's a great thing for couples to do together. Um, I also think it's a great thing to do with children. Yes, when they're very young, sometimes you have these simple like 15, 20 piece puzzles, and that can be good and helps them work on some things and even their fine motor movements and things of that sort. But as they're getting older, I think it's such a good thing to do something with your kids from a young age. When I say getting older, I mean beyond the baby stage where they're just barely able to put a puzzle together. But doing activities with your children that take some time and take some investment to make a result. Something similar to this, or actually I should say very different, but similar in the theme of taking time is something like gardening. So having a child put a seed in the dirt and do all the things it takes to prepare that seed, water it, give it all the conditions it needs, and then watch it grow, let it grow, which takes time. You can't just rush it and be like, I want to already have the plant or see it. You might have to wait weeks to even see a little sprout come out of the ground and then see it turn into something. And then maybe eventually it turns into some kind of vegetable that you can actually eat and then let them eat that vegetable to to literally have the fruits or the vegetables of their labor and feel what that is like. I think that's actually really important to give kids that experience. And so as a parent, you might feel that same pressure that how, how much do my kid do they have to do this many classes of this and these this many experiences like that or to get through so many things but not realize that one of the most important things you teach your kid is the values not just things they they go through and to show them the value of, of slowing down and going through experiences that allow for them to see what comes of those things you invest time in the things that you try to slow down to experience to then share with them so I know I just did a puzzle, or I'm doing a puzzle, so it's on my mind. So there are many activities that might be like that. But just to consider, am I doing anything in your own life, but also if you're a parent with your kids, something that is a long-term type of project that takes a long time to come to fruition, some type of a project that won't be done today or tomorrow, that is ongoing and you keep thinking about it and you come back to it. It also shows them how important it is to be consistent with something. That if you want to get something done that's meaningful, it almost always will take dedicated and consistent effort to get to that result. And there's no way to, to fake this. There's no way to, okay, I'm going to in one hour show them how important this is. It, it doesn't work. It has to actually take the time. There's no way around that. So it has to take the days or the weeks or the months to see that result. And then how good does that result feel if they're putting a puzzle together or 
or having, you know, growing some plants, how good does that feel to then see that final result? But it only feels that good if they put that time and effort and that length of time. So if you bring them vegetables and say, oh, yeah, here, you know, you grew these and they didn't do anything about it, they won't feel anything. They won't feel that connection to it because they, they haven't experienced what it's like to put in that labor to get there. But especially when it comes to our relationships, this is something that I think, unfortunately, we are losing more and more, this sense that we have to keep doing something that is a thing or else the time does not have value. And experiences are wonderful. I have talked about that on the show before, too, that having experiences where you go somewhere or you go to some kind of an event together. I love going to sporting events or if you want to really travel somewhere or even just going to a park, going to a really nice view. Those are really important to have those experiences. So it's not to say that's not important, but realizing how much happens in the slowed down experiences that we have and how much of life is that. If you're in a relationship and you have a lot of fun doing things, that's great. And you should do those things and make time and effort into making those things happen. But real life happens in that day to day, in those more slow moments where you're just going through your day, each other separately, some parts together, coming together. And that slow type of a experience, that's what life is really all about. And so how do you do in those moments when things are more slow? And some people actually have a hard time with that, just having things go slow. And we might need someone to help us realize that, to get more in touch with that side that allows for things to slow down a bit. What does it feel like when I'm not moving one from one thing to the next? Uh, and something I've, I've seen in so many people is the sense that we're running towards something, but we're not even sure what. We go from one thing to the next thing, and then I finish this thing. Okay, now i got to go do that thing. And as soon as the thing is finished, rather than even enjoying or sitting with what we've done, we already are going on to the next thing. And really what it seems to me that we're doing most of those times is we're running from ourselves in some way, running from just feeling what we're feeling and experiencing things. We just want to be busy with something. And so our phones are our biggest um, distraction and serve us really disservice, but it serves us in this way that it's right next to your hand and a way to con- completely disconnect from yourself constantly. Just take that out and look at it and scroll through something. And really, that's a lot of what we're doing and a lot of what social media companies are preying on is realizing that we don't want to be connected to ourselves. And so we are going to find ways for distractions and they give us an easy way to distract. But sometimes I think back, being old enough to remember before cell phones, what we would do before. You would have to just sit there sometimes and and just think or sit there sometimes and just reflect which might seem now like a waste of time. People think, oh no, I was reading an article while I was waiting for my friend, or I listened to 10 minutes of this podcast while I was waiting at the doctor's office, or whatever it is. We find ways where we think we're being productive, but we don't realize that we're filling up our time with so many things, but are those things valuable? And what do we lose when we do that? Even I'm talking about romantic relationships, but since Uh, The book I talked about today, The Self-Delusion, was about the self. Even based on what you see in this book, we see that we have this type of a relationship with ourself. It's not just some fixed thing. And we're we're interacting with ourself in some way, as strange as that might sound. And how much do we actually allow for that to happen? Or how much are we constantly staying, uh, staying distracted from that? In therapy, I often encourage people to either journal 
or to meditate. And something I've experienced, because I've experienced it myself too personally, but when I encourage people to do this is there's a lot of resistance to do these things. You know, of course, there's the classic things of not having enough time or being too busy or things like, oh, you know, it's kind of boring or I felt like what's the point to meditate or what's the point to journal and write down my feelings or things I'm thinking about. I don't want to waste time like that. But really what they're saying, and at times I try to break down with them, is it looks like you're running away from getting in touch with what you're feeling because that doesn't feel comfortable. Even in meditation, people think generally of this feeling of at peace and being very zen and namaste and I feel amazing. And overall, meditating can make you feel those things. But what people sometimes forget is that when you're meditating, what you're doing is getting in touch with your feelings. And a lot of those feelings won't feel very good. So if you start meditating, you might get in touch with something you're worried about. You might get in touch with some negative feeling you have about someone in your life that you wish you didn't have. Some anger or some envy, something that you don't want to have or don't want to even accept that you have. And so because we don't want to feel these things, we'd rather stay distracted because that's more comfortable. But so we, we hope we won't just live a life of comfort and go into that discomfort. And here's one of those discomforts that allows for us to connect with ourselves, but it means we have to be willing to tolerate what is there. And so if we again look at how 360 degrees in our relationships, the same thing, rather than keep doing something to stay busy, Sometimes that's because we're afraid of just sitting with the person and seeing how we feel when there isn't something to distract us or there isn't something to entertain us in that moment. What is it like just to, to be together and to be with each other rather than to be in the same place while, some, while something else is going on? And so, yes, all of these thoughts and these, these ideas had come to my mind thinking about puzzles or having that experience of doing something that forced me to to slow down a bit and to experience this excitement of uh, getting guess getting it done I actually I know that was what I was just talking about but getting something done that takes some time takes some effort doing something that you don't feel very good at so I felt like I'm not sure if I'm good at this or I'm not sure exactly even how to begin creating strategies on the spot and seeing how they work um, but but it really was a nice experience just to do something that is a slower type of activity. And so it made me realize that in my own life, there aren't a lot of things like that, something ongoing that is slower. Uh, my days can be very full and I'm doing lots of different things and that feels good and some of it can be good, but some of it might also be like I was saying, a way of avoiding just slowing down a bit and getting in touch with what's going on in my day to day. So um, this doesn't mean that all of you have to go buy puzzles to today or tomorrow you can I think it's a pretty cool thing to try and I hope you will uh, maybe do it if you haven't done it in a while it's uh, one of those kind of nerdy things that people might think about doing puzzles but it's really really fun I, I encourage you to do it I think I sounded very nerdy saying that puzzles are fun but I really think it's true so I hope you'll do that do things that make you slow down a bit and realize that life isn't about finishing things it's about experiencing things it's about living your life not just getting through your life all right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazwale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.